I was born in in Beirut, Lebanon, uh, of Armenian descent. Um, Lebanon was a pretty cosmopolitan place, and there was a very large minority of Armenians living there by, by, the, by the hundreds of thousands. And uh, and so I kind of grew up on the one hand ethnically in this kind of protected environment where mostly I was I was brought up in Armenian school, Armenian church, all these things. But at the same time, I lived in this country where I didn't realize early on just how volatile the space the, t- the place would be. So you know, in the first decade of my life, I thought I was living in near heaven, uh, and then it kind of became hell after a while. Um, but it was a, it was a great place to to get a foundation. Uh, you know, I was I was the youngest of three boys. Uh, my my dad had immigrated from Bulgaria, where where his father had immigrated to after the genocide. My mom had come to Lebanon, was born in Lebanon by virtue of his dad escaping uh, the genocide and ending up basically leaving Urfa to come to Lebanon. So we ended up there, you know, kind of uh, transients, if you will, in the sense that it never really felt like home. Um, ironically, I'll say uh, growing up, uh, and again, I didn't appreciate these things until much later in my life, but uh, if you're born in Lebanon and your father is not Lebanese, you don't get a citizenship. And so I lived my entire time in Lebanon without ever being a Lebanese citizen, which came back to to kind of be an irony when last year the government of Lebanon uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, generously honored me and gave me their of honor for a Lebanese citizen, only to realize that I wasn't quite technically a Lebanese citizen, but we figured being born there amounts to something. But it just gives you a glimpse of kind of how these different currents operated in that region at the time. Lots of people moving, lots of lots of different kinds of people. Anyway, um, you know, received a good education, uh, great education in the early years, and and uh, that, that's where I got my foundation. So, Nubar, I know, like you know, for example, my parents, father, mother, uncles, everybody was either born or raised in Lebanon early on. And a lot of them came here during that civil war era. And, you know, even to this day, it's had such a huge impact on their lives, right? Just seeing that, you know, hardship, seeing a war, it really did impact them, um, both positively and negatively, I think, in a sense. Um, You know, looking back, you know, how did that impact you or did it at all impact, you know, you and who you've become? Well, yeah, I think, I think it impacted me in, in every which way. Um, On the one hand, obviously your childhood experiences and influences matter a lot wherever you're born. And mine happened to be of a, of a Lebanese uh, variety. Um, And of course, even the climate and kind of like the kind of people you interact with and their moods and their, Habits all influence you, and because that's what you consider uh, native, that's what you consider familiar. Um, so that's that was impactful. Um, second, frankly, the education I got, in which I find when I look back, you know, we learned four languages growing up, you know, in in grade school and in and in early high school, that'd be unthinkable in many other places, and you know, we never knew any better, so we thought we're supposed to learn four languages, uh, and. And then you know the, the 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 conflict that started in '72 and then in 1975, which is when it really blew up. In '72, there was the Israel-Syria kind of uh, uh, skirmishes, 
and then in 75. So, you know, then at that time we already saw kind of like black, you know, uh, you know, people having to cover the lights in their cars and, 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 you know, curfews and all that. And we thought, well, you know, big deal, you know, we're just in the wrong neighborhood. Next thing we realized in 75, all hell broke loose. And so, you know, we lived there for, I don't know, maybe six, seven months during an all-out civil war. I mean, so we we'd look out of our apartment building, and we happened to be living in a in one of the tallest buildings in Lebanon, which is ninth floor of a ten-story building. There were probably three or four other tall buildings, and that was it. Which meant the rest of it you could watch uh, from 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 these places. And you know, day and night there were rockets being thrown. You know, maybe a kilometer away from where we lived. So after a while, you get used to it. But then the fact that you get used to it changes you. Because, you know, every once in a while you get sirens, you have to run down nine stories to a, to a basement. So we went through that for a short period of time, relatively speaking, because it went on for eight years after that. So, sure, all of that, then kind of leaving to or escaping literally to, to Montreal, Canada, which is where my father and mother took us ultimately, you know, didn't see snow before, didn't really know the, those. So all of that, the change kind of, the survivalist kind of experience, the change, you don't really realize it when you're at that age, but it does influence you later on. And so, yes, when I look back, I find that probably, not that I would recommend it to people as training, but it probably prepared me for for much of what I've done, which is which has been the rough and tumble of the startup and innovation world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at a young age, perhaps the first decade, you know, in Lebanon, did you have an idea of what you wanted to be when you grew up, you know, or like what you were interested in or not really? Not really. Not really. I used to, I, I loved school. I did well in school. I loved to study. I was probably extremely obsessive when it came to studying. So I overstudied and my brothers made fun of me for that appropriately. But I, you know, I enjoyed it. I did also lots of sports. I played a lot of basketball and some soccer um, and so, you know, I, you know, when did acting, did, you know, music, this and that, but, but school was really important to me. And in a way, because I, I, I forced myself to study lots of different topics and it, it wasn't like one thing I was good at and the others I wasn't. So it was less easy for me to say, well, as a result, I'm going to do science or I'm going to do whatever, uh, ling- language. It, it, I tried to do as well as I could in every topic and, so yes, I did. I did not have a good sense of that. You know, not a lot of families grew up. I would let's call it fortunate or with money in Lebanon. Was that similar to your situation, or were you in a family where that was, I guess, could be considered more middle class? You know, I would say we definitely had a middle class life. My dad, when he first came from Bulgaria, was kind of without any money because they escaped the communist regime, uh, uh, and so he started from scratch. He got a job as a drafter helping an architect. Uh, he had studied architecture in, in, in the one year of college, and then he was forced out of Bulgaria. And so he just did, his, he did that as a, as a trade, he realized he can't really make a living doing that. And so he decided to become a, a trader. Basically, you know, he became a businessman, set up his own trading company. Um, ironically, like the movie... You know, it, 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 where, where basically, uh, you know, the line is about, you know, plastics, they're going to be big. Well, he was in plastics. He basically, the, this was the beginning of when plastics were beginning to enter the industrial realm. And so he got into buying and selling large quantities of nylon and 
vinyl and different types of plastics and bringing it to the Middle East. There was nobody who was doing that at the time. And so, you know, he had his own business and he did, he did well. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't, you know, I don't think we had a super rich life, but we certainly had a middle-class life. And so we were able to afford uh, a, a, a decent life. And I, we, we didn't know any better uh, because we didn't really hang out with people that were, that were very different uh, right. uh, than, than the people who were in our school. So, yeah, I would say I wasn't, you know, it's very disadvantaged. On the other hand, I, I wouldn't consider my upbringing to be a rich one. I know. So you talk about moving to Canada. Um, I saw that you studied chemical engineering um, at McGill and then went on to get your PhD in um, biochemical engineering from MIT. And then I think it was maybe like a year or so after where you started your first company. Um, uh, what? When did you know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and maybe not go down a more like a sci- like a scientist path? Or I don't know if you had any other like paths in yeah. mind at the time. Um, but when when did that kind of realization come to you sure so um when i so first of all you know chemical engineering was was kind of a a field i ended up in in order to do engineering which i was good at physics and math and chemistry so i decided to do chemical engineering and and then a couple a year or two into it i got jobs in the summers where i worked in petrochemical petroleum refining plants and i realized that's not what i wanted to do and so I found what, whatever was the cutting edge of chemical engineering, I, I migrated to that. And that was the biofield, because in the early 1980s, uh, the, for the first time, people were thinking about biology and biotechnology very, very early in the, in the, in the development. So I was drawn to that largely because I didn't want to do petroleum and petrochemical stuff. Um, but, then, but then when I came to MIT, I, I, much, I was still focused on kind of get doing well and doing research and learning how to do science. Because when you do a PhD, even in an engineering department, you're largely doing science because that's the, the new part of any, uh, any, any kind of technology uh, work you do. And, and the, the paths available to a PhD student in the, in the mid eighties, uh, even till now are primarily back then anyway, were academic. So you can go and become a, a professor if you get a PhD in a new field, that was the, the most attractive thing to do because there was a huge demand for academics who could teach the topics because they were new. So every university wanted a biochemical engineering department, didn't have one, so you could easily get jobs. And then the other one was going to pharmaceutical company and, and ba- being basically in, in, the, in, the, in the industry. Those were the two choices. There was no startups back in the early 80s, mid-80s. There were no startups to go to. And I had a chance event that basically changed the arc of my life, or at least opened my eyes to this, which I've described many times before, and I can do so briefly now. Uh, in 1985, I was sent by MIT to a conference down in Washington, D.C. It was put on by the National Science Foundation. And the conference was an odd one in that it was basically all about how to maintain U.S. competitiveness. At the time, the threat was Japan. And now we worry about China. At that time, everybody was obsessed about Japan basically uh, eating the U.S. lunch in terms of technology. And biotechnology being one of the frontier areas, you know, my being one of the first students in that space, kind of I ended up going to this conference. And at the conference, quite by chance, at lunch, I sat next to this person and asked him what he did. And he was about my dad's age. He was a large person, tall. And he started telling me how he and another you know, person, a uh, friend of his, had started coming out of their uh, program uh, back 30 years earlier, 
Uh, they were trained to be electronic engineers. They didn't know what electronic engineers would do, but they decided to make instruments for the for their friends. And so they invented an oscilloscope and they started making it in their garage and they then kind of got a little money and started making more of it. And they started making more and more instruments and eventually they had built this kind of large company. And when you say uh, instruments, like medical instruments? No, oscilloscopes, electronics, measurement instruments for the electronics field. Got it. So this was, this, they were electronic engineers. And they later called electric engineers. And so he started telling me the story about how it went. And, you know, I said, well, what does it take to do that? And he said, well, you know, you just need to have something that is better than what's out there before. And then you learn with customers and they'll tell you what more they need. And you just keep following their needs. And so, you know, it was a great story. And I was thinking, well, wow, this is a new breed of engineer. He's talking about, I'm a new breed of engineer today. You know, instruments kind of were interesting in that, like in a new field, instruments that are used are from other fields, just by definition. And so what ends up happening is they're inappropriate for what you try to do with them, but that's all you got until people develop instruments for the new field. So that had happened, unbeknownst to me, in electrical engineering years before, and I thought this was an interesting opportunity to do. And so I asked him who he was, and he was David Packard from Hewlett Packard. <laughs> I had no idea who he was the whole time. He didn't say what the company's name was, actually, in the beginning. And, and he may have thought I knew, but I didn't know. And then he, we spent some more time together at this thing, just you know, I tried to pick his brain. I came back. And I thought, you know what? I should try to learn about this stuff and tried to get into management school classes at MIT in the mid 80s. The management school did not let engineering students take classes. So I had to kind of talk my way in. Some of my professors from then who've become friends 30 years later now kind of fondly tell stories about how I convinced them to let me into their class. And so I took some classes on management of innovation. And there was no venture capital class, there was no startup class, entrepreneurship class, but there were some innovation classes. So I took as much as I could, a couple of classes. And then in 1987, as I was finishing, I had started thinking a lot about what instrument I could develop. And I had some ideas from, from, from the work I did, not my PhD per se, but work I had done during my PhD that suggested what instrumentation might be needed. And I started right, right after my PhD. And it took about a year to be able to attract money and to be able to kind of figure out exactly what to do. This was, by the way, 1987 October, which was called Black Monday, October 29th, when when the market crashed, hmm. and that was when I started. That was my the day after that. I had my first venture capital mini meeting, which was great because I didn't know any better. So I went in thinking this is kind of a panacea, and these people were like, "Come back in a year because nobody's going to give you any money for now." And uh, that's how I got my start. Nubar, were you making money during that time? I mean, as a PhD student, they're not typically making that much money um were you ever concerned with that or is it just more so you're intrigued by this new kind of adventure let's call it that you can embark on you know when you when you i was i was fortunate in that i had come from uh canada with a scholarship from the canadian government uh which was an engineering uh research council scholarship and it paid for my stay at mit and that plus what MIT paid as, as a graduate student, because you do research that are against grants, gave me a, a decent life while I was still a student. But then I was finishing my PhD, right. at which point I'd have no source of income. Um, I was quite concerned. And in fact, I ended up getting a job at MIT, uh, thanks, thanks to the generosity of my professor who I did my PhD with. He hired me after I finished to be 
a technology transfer person for the center that he ran. He ran the very first uh, bioprocess engineering center. His name was Danny Wong. He's passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. And he hired me as tech transfer officer, partly to, to do that work, but also partly so I could stay, stay kind of afloat long enough to get the company started. But, you know, I've gone through experiences like having my electricity shut off and having to move apartments because I, I didn't pay my rent and all the things that you hear a lot about that are almost old kind of like cliches now. But yeah. I went through that at the time. And, and uh, you know, it didn't phase me very much because I, I literally, I, look, I didn't want to ask my, my family for money, my dad for money. I later realized he didn't have that much to give anyway. But I knew I had a bit of a safety net. And when I used to get in real trouble, I borrow money and quickly pay it back. But, but yeah, I went through the same thing that a lot of people go through. Right. And I guess based on that, you know, I guess switching up to like maybe you giving advice to the listeners, like for those that are in that position where, you know, they are finishing up college or they are finishing up grad school and, you know, money is about to run dry or, you know, they don't know where it's going to come from. Or even during this time of our, you know, economy where they're talking about unemployment being increased for the next couple of years. But this individual or these individuals have an idea. They have a passion to pursue something. What do you tell them? What is your advice to them as an entrepreneur now, as a leader in, in business? What should they do? What should they consider? Well, that's, you know, it's, it's somewhat case specific in that, you know, it, there's different kinds of companies one could start, right? So in the kind of things that I'm involved with, um, you're not going to be able to generate revenues early on. And so you've got to secure financing. And so your idea has to be big enough, bold enough that you can attract serious capital mm -hmm. uh, in the first instance, tens of millions of dollars, eventually sometimes well over hundreds of millions of dollars. That's not the case if you're starting a company which is doing a, a shared service, a, an app, or any number of new things that are being developed in the tech side. So it depends is one question, one answer. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you, you got to figure out what, what you're doing it for. I mean, there's some people who can't think of doing anything else. And those people, I wouldn't discourage from doing it no matter how hard up they are, because, you know, that's the only way they're going to learn how to do it is by trying. It's, there's no further education and preparation you're going to get. The quality of the idea that they're working on and the team they can attract will dictate in many ways, you know, how and how adaptable they are will dictate whether they'll succeed or how quickly they'll succeed. But, you know, I've been involved in a number of other companies where I've been a co-founder with folks that have gone down a similar journey. And, you know, and there was a company called Color Kinetics years and years ago that got started in 97 that I was involved in together with a couple of younger folks at the time. And, you know, these guys were spending, you know, thousands of dollars on their credit cards basically to, to, to get equipment for their company. And, you know, people, people run up debt, people borrow money from their family. It's, 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 you know, you, you make some real sacrifices. Uh, these days, the, the, the angel, you know, combinator, incubator, all these things are, are pretty prevalent. So there's a lot of, I mean, it's a totally different world now than it was certainly 20 years ago, let alone 30, 35 years ago. But you, you never are going to get rid of the struggle. You're never going to have enough money. You know, people keep telling me, for as long as I've done this, there's been this notion of a funding chasm, you know, the, the valley of death, and there's a lack of funding for really big ideas. In reality, there's always a funding chasm because there'll always be things that won't be backed. And for that, 
it's going to be a funding chasm. And you've just got to decide how hard are you willing to to push and how, how resilient are you. And lots of people around you who, meanwhile, are going to tell you, hey, you know, don't don't do this. It's not good for you, etc. And 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 some people are stubborn and they'll do it anyway and they'll succeed. And other people are going to do it and they're going to fail and they're going to say, I wish I hadn't. But the reality is if you don't fail, you're not going to succeed the next time or the time after that. So you also got to get on with it. You got to get on with accumulating some failure because that's the only way you learn in this space. Yeah. So the so the first company that you had started was Perceptive Biosystems. Uh, did you have to speaking of fundraising? Did you did you have to go out and raise funding? And if you did, how did how was that process like? Um, as someone who had maybe never done it before, and it was like your first kind of go yeah. at it. Yeah. So I went to speak to a few venture capitalists. There were very few venture capital firms at the time, let alone in life science, because it was an early field. But I went to speak to a few because it was in nineteen late eighty seven, early eighty eight, and there was a real like freeze of funding at the time. Uh, NASDAQ had crashed like, I don't know, 50%. So it was just a horrible time. Um, I basically, you know, decided that I needed to find money elsewhere and, and started reaching out through whoever I could find to introduce me to people who could even just invest two, $300,000. And I ultimately, after a year of trying, found $300,000 from three different sources. Uh, 300 meaning in aggregate. Um, and, and that's how I started. You know, I had a thousand square foot office and we were getting some labs that we had, we were using, borrowing from different places. And that's how we started. Um, eventually about six months later, I raised a million dollars of venture capital that was split across three different groups as well. Uh, back then you have to realize you have to adjust for time. A million dollars was probably the average average series a round it was by no means a small round now you get a million dollars when you're a child just for the uh, just for the fact that you're like nubar's like niece or something <laughs> and then when you raise your pre-seed it's like 20 million well yeah exactly exactly so uh well you know the one thing i learned uh and you said correctly i had no idea how to raise money is that i used to i'll, I'll tell you a funny story on top of this which is i've never told before but um, the one thing I learned is that, you know, raising money is the closest thing to begging, basically, because at the end of the day, you don't have it, they have it, you need it, you hope they'll give it to you, and there's no guarantee it's going to produce anything. So you can put all the words you want, investment, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, people in the very early instance, when you have nothing, you know, you have to be basically uh, realizing that it's, it's just the kind of kindness of their heart that they're, that they're willing to lose the money. And once in a while, make some money as a reward. Uh, I, I always viewed it that way. And I used to think that if I succeeded, I would have to stop begging. Um, <laughs> little known fact is that if you succeed in this space, you just beg for larger amounts. And, and I haven't stopped begging at the end of the day for 35 years later because I continue to raise money for our funds and for our companies, larger amounts. And so, but it's, it's, it's the same. You have to think about what makes this a compelling argument for them? The story I was going to tell you, though, is that literally at the time when I was raising the first million post the seed, this is kind of ironic and it connects to my Armenian background. Uh, so this would have been, you know, end of 88. There was an earthquake in Armenia and it was devastating. And I remember very well, like maybe December uh, of 88, uh, I, you know, everybody, you know, Armenian descent and the diaspora freaked out, including us. And so we kind of 
went out on the street the day after and to collect money and clothes and stuff to send to Armenia. So here I am in, in, in a downtown Boston, a famous place called Quincy Market. It's, it's Christmas shopping season. And I'm out there with my fiance at the time we weren't married, literally with a sign saying I'm collecting money for Armenian earthquake and with a, with a pot in front of me. And truth be told, hours into this, all day long on a Saturday, and out walks one of the venture capitalists I had seen who's out Christmas shopping. And he said, man, you must be really desperate if you're, if you're here raising money. And I never forget that. It was so funny. It was a great line, absolutely great line. But anyway. It really puts it into perspective, right? I mean, like, I mean, it's crazy. You do what it takes. Do you enjoy fundraising? You know, no, I don't. I don't enjoy. I also don't know too many people who do enjoy fundraising. I think that because, you know, when, when you're fundraising, you are basically becoming indebted to the person who's placing their trust uh, in you. I, I don't particularly enjoy fundraising, uh, but it's a means to an end. It's a means to an end in that that's the fuel you need to enable the products you want to make that will then impact people so that they will give you more fuel back so you can keep doing more of it. And I view it that way and I don't have it and they have it and I got to go get it. And they got to believe that they're going to get many fold of it back, uh, recognizing that there's real risk that they don't get any of it back. And you know, that it's, it's something, it's a necessary part of creating value. That's the way I've always looked at it. Well, what we're, um, speaking of, you know, perceptive biosystems. I think you ran it for ten or so years before it was acquired. Um, what was that experience like as being like this first time CEO? Um, what were like the biggest takeaways, I guess, from that time? Oh, it's like an infinite number of experiences uh, when it comes to fundraising, when it comes to team raising, when it comes to kind of products and you know product strategy. And then we went public at a fairly early stage. The company was about five years old. We went public. We had less than a million in revenues, then scale and and partnerships, and you know, I just in every regard, everything was this incredibly uh, intense experience. Um, you know, I probably made every mistake that could be made. There may have been some I didn't make, but fortunately, I'm not aware of them. Uh, and and uh, you know, I kind of realized one thing I did. Thank God, I was 24 years old when I started was that I was young enough that I didn't feel like I had to pretend I know anything. And I stayed in that mode for as long as I could. Uh, and I, in many ways, am in that mode today. Because one thing I realized is that people think that in order for people to follow them and to, to give them money, uh, they need to act like they know everything. And, and since I knew I didn't know everything, I never pretended I knew everything. And I literally just very openly told people, I don't know much. And, but I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to iterate. So I would say I learned how to adapt. I learned how to, I, I, I was quite paranoid about not, not knowing a lot. And that paranoia actually helped me a lot. I developed the sense over the years that you need to be a paranoid optimist to succeed in a startup setting. And what I mean by a paranoid optimist is really this blend of, of on the one hand questioning yourself and on the other hand believing in yourself. And that tension constantly causes you to check your assumptions and iterate and adapt, et cetera. And it turns out that that adaptive uh, mindset is, is absolutely necessary for doing new things. 
so I learned a lot of concrete things along the way. I made a bunch of mistakes. You know, how do you hire people that are twice your age? How do you motivate people? You know, what makes them believe in the story? How do they feel ownership in it instead of just feeling like they're working there? All of these things, you know, it's it. you just have to kind of make your peace with. You have to come up with your own version of these things. And fortunately, I had the opportunity to learn. Uh, and the scale, you know, the company grew towards the end. We were about 880 people. We had about 110 million in revenues across many different instruments we had invented and developed. And so it was a largely with lots of ups and downs, a very, very uh, educational experience. And it was also rewarding. So I'm curious, you know, you've obviously started and been a part of so many companies and it would take a whole founder hour series to go through them all. We could just focus on you, but to keep it to the, you know, hour of our founder hour, um, what was your purpose, right? At the time, or even after your first company, did you have a purpose yet of what you wanted to do in the world or did that come later? You know, um, I was drawn to biotechnology because it impacted human health. And, you know, that create long before there was social impact and social responsibility and ESG and many other things, there was no question that the purpose, the end result of what we were trying to do impacted human health. You know, I lost my father to cancer. I lost my mother to cancer. And while I didn't do these things, uh, because of that, I certainly, it didn't, it didn't escape me that better instruments, better information, better drugs, better vaccines, better diagnostics would all change that landscape. And that has been the one constant in being in this field. Along the way, I branched out into renewable energy, which has also a noble purpose given, given climate change, agriculture and sustainable nutrition, which has its own food security applications. So, Fortunately, I've been able to practice this kind of the, the way in which we do innovation all in that field. So that's that's the first purpose that I'd say was always there. But more, more importantly, um, I'd say in midway through Perceptive, I started getting intrigued by this notion uh, I had, probably the continuation of my imaginary discussion now because I was no longer talking to David Packard, but that original discussion continued in my mind about what it really means to be an entrepreneur. And I got quite interested in thinking about the process of entrepreneurship and, and, and how to do it in a more planful way. I really did not like the kind of gamification of startups, which was already happening in the early 90s as the number of companies were growing and there were lots of software companies and then eventually many biotech companies. And, and, and I kind of, from an early stage, 30 years ago, started resenting the fact that people thought, oh, it's mostly going to fail and you bet on this and you bet on that. It was like this lottery almost. And you were somehow, like imagine going to work every day, being a number of a lottery ticket that somebody's bought is guessing whether you're going to succeed or not. I don't want to be a lottery ticket. And I realized that early on. So the only way you can break out of being a lottery ticket is if you make this not a game. And so that thought led me down a path of thinking about how to think about entrepreneurship in a more systematic way, in a more professional way, in a parallel way. These were all revolting thoughts at the time. They still are in some ways because the world believed that entrepreneurs are these, you know, kind of like part magician, part dreamer who did this wonderful kind of 
thing and all this romantic, chaotic, improvisational part of entrepreneurship, I grew somewhat, um, uh, let's say, resistant to, uh, to your question about what, what happened in, in my own, what drove me. So I increasingly got interested in the premise that maybe, because in the 90s, in, while running Perceptive, I got involved as a co-founder in a number of other companies in biotech and in one and not in this color, color LED lighting space I got involved. And these things kind of led me to the conclusion that the fact that it was being done in that way was just the product of the fact that it was a new space and people were winging it. But that if you now, given what we knew about startups, maybe there is another way of inventing companies, inventing platforms in a very, very planful, systematic way. And that's what led to the formation of what was a flagship, which used to be called Nucogen. And that became actually the purpose for which I've done much of what I've been doing. So that kind of augmented the health, sustainability, noble purpose with the opportunity to develop a totally new way of starting companies and innovating. Yeah. You talk about the process of entrepreneurship and I'm curious, you know, with flagship, obviously you've gone on to start, you know, 40, 50 plus, I I don't know the exact number, but a lot of companies and many of them have gone public and have been, you know, successful. I'm guessing you would call them successful at that point. Um, what has the what is the ideation process look like? How do you how, like what is the process of going from here's an idea to testing it, prototyping it, launching it? You know, kind of walk us through that. So right, so a couple of things I'll say before that, and then I'll tell you kind of how we think about this. So first, the 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 wording matters, and and in the '90s I used to go around telling people that the the, the word entrepreneurship is unfortunately where some of the misconception comes in. Um, part of the word uh, for your founder audience, uh, they may be interested to know, the first part stems from a French origin. Um, you may know uh, it's called entreprendre, which means to undertake. So literally it translates into undertaker, uh, which is often a condition many founders find themselves in, in that they're basically presiding over something that didn't quite work out. But that's the joke part. The part of the name that I had always an issue with was the ending because by calling it entrepreneurship, it's part of a a set of words like friendship, leadership, sportsmanship, craftsmanship. All of these ships imply the state of being something, right? You're a friend, you have friendship. So I'm an engineer. I don't do engineership. I do engineering which is not the state of being something, but it's the state of the act of doing something. And so if I, if I was king for a day, I would call what we do entrepreneuring. I would not call what we do entrepreneurship. And right there, you change your mind from feeling like, you know, is my background, is the, you know, I'm a founder, I'm doing entrepreneurship. I'd say, no, it's just a question of doing it. And I think, by the way, that a vast number of people can do it much greater than what the world believes are the entitlements of entrepreneurs and the special sauce that they supposedly have. I don't believe that. So on that premise, I decided it's better as a team sport and you can actually learn how to do it better and better. For that, I had data in that if you look historically, and MIT has done huge studies just of their alumni uh, over the years, and you could see that serial entrepreneurs have a much higher chance of success than single-time entrepreneurs. Well, if you couldn't learn it, how could you get better at it? Right, And yet the world thought you couldn't learn it. So these things propelled me to think there must be a way. 
And so flagship, then to your question, how does flagship innovate? So we, we have a couple of beliefs in this regard. One is that we think breakthrough innovations aren't made by people. We think they emerge. And you might say, what does emerge mean? And what emerge means is that they are kind of an unobvious combination of a whole lot of parts that when they're recombined, they create holes. The parts could be the components of your product, the components of your system, how they fit into a value chain or a business model. All of those are things you could recombine. And emergence is what happens when you get some combination of these things that suddenly become incredibly valuable and people go like, how did that happen? And, and that's a bit of an illusion in that it's just the fact that a nonlinear combination of things will produce that effect. It's not a, it's not a predictable uh, you know, landscape of, 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 of uh, fitness, let's say. And, and the reason I use these words is because a lot of that comes from evolution. So if you study natural evolution, Darwinian evolution, you're dealing with variation, selection, and iteration. And if you do variation, selection, and iteration on some transmissible information molecule, in our case, as living beings, DNA, you get ear, two ears, and eyes, and long necks, and gills, and you name it. All of it is emergent. Nobody designed it. It's emergent. And so if you think about it, we believed that breakthrough innovations are just that, that some recombination of a business model or a chip or a way a program is done eventually finds something that makes it just pop. And so if you believe that, which is not the way the world believes these days in general, then you got to create an environment within which you can practice emergence. So what we do, just to be more specific, is that our ideation process because we work in life sciences, so they we're not making individual widgets or little things, but so these are usually drugs or new modalities of drugs and vaccines. So, so what we do is we literally think about combinations of parts and business models that, are, that don't yet exist at all, many of them, and then we literally iterate them in the face of selection pressure. Where might the selection pressure come from? Experts in the field, non-experts in the field, entrepreneurs, you know, heads of R&D in big companies, academics. We expose our ideas to a lot of people, and they happily tell us just how stupid our ideas are. And by the way, they are stupid ideas in the first instance. But what we're trying to do is to take that selection pressure and to iterate and improve upon them. And so we that's how we ideate. We run a process by which things emerge that are unexpected winners, if you will, amidst the sea of possibilities that are way ahead of their time. That's the key thing. You cannot, if this is not something I would do to make a slightly faster chip or a slightly better, but that, this is overkill for that. But if you're trying to create super new things, novelty, this turns out to be a good starting point. Then, and, then I'll, and I'll complete, then what we do is once we go through this iterative process and we kind of reduce it down to something that nobody can tell us why it's a bad idea anymore. Then we go into labs and try to see if it's real. Because if it's not real, it was just a thought experiment. And by doing that second, we limit the number of things we spend expensive resources in the lab to prove only to the ones that, if proven, are going to be valuable. We know that from the first, first steps. And that's how we invent. That's how we innovate. We have a process. We call this emergent discovery. 
if anybody was interested, uh, I co-authored a paper finally 20 years later <laughs> with a professor at Harvard Business School called Gary Pisano. It, it appeared at the Harvard Business Review in May of 2021, and it lays out the process in, in lots of detail. And that's how we innovate. And if we're right, it'll create totally new value pools that are not adjacencies to what's already been done because this whole methodology allows us to leap into totally new areas. And we do that maybe 100 times a year, of which maybe 10 or 12 of them are then prototyped in this experimental phase. And out of that, six to eight new platform companies are born every year. So taking, so taking Moderna as an example, um, how did you apply this thinking, this process um, to that and what you were initially trying, you know, working on? And then obviously the pivot came when, you know, the, you know, COVID outbreak happened. But what was the initial kind of yeah. vision of, of how you started Moderna? Um, how did you even come to work in mRNA? Um, yeah. Kind of walk us through that, I guess, as an example of, of sure. this process. Sure. So a lot of our explorations are all st predicated on asking what if questions. And so at any given time, we ask lots of what if we could do this? What if this was true? What if that's just kind of the, 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 the uh, coin of the realm for us. And in that context, among the what if questions we used to wonder about back in those days, which is 2010 timeframe, 2010, 2011, um, was, you know, what if it's one of the questions, one of the projects we're working on is what if we could actually deliver a molecule to, to a human, to a patient, so that they can make their own proteins, they can make their own drugs, uh, regardless of what the drug is they needed. And that is a kind of a pure fantasy question. Now, at the same time, we could see lots of different scientific uh, uh, reports and advances. And in this case with mRNA, we, we were exposed to some work that was done quite separately on the use of mRNA to transform cells in a, in, a, in a laboratory setting into a particular kind of cell called iPSC cells. And what people had done is taken mRNA and used it to transform those cells. And while it was quite a contrived experiment in the sense that the, 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 the immune response was kind of a little bit subdued, but still there was quite a bit of, of negativity, if you will, to the cells undergoing this transformation, there were hints that mRNA might be an interesting molecule to try this with. But it had not been tried in an animal, let alone to completely uh, transform a, or make a therapeutic or a vaccine. But, but we could kind of say, okay, suspend this belief for a second. Maybe mRNA, we also considered DNA, we considered other approaches, uh, could be such a molecule. So that, that was kind of the middle of 2010 beginnings of just exploring what if you could take a, a molecule, in this case mRNA, modify it not a little bit, but a lot by things that had never been tried before, chemical modifications. And what if that could allow you to put it into the body, not to happen before? And what if that could make a protein of therapeutic interest? But Nubal, I just want to stop for a second. Yeah. Like, how does one come up with that question? I mean, like, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's, I don't want to call it crazy, even though it is, but how does one even come up with the thought of formulating this idea right like is it you is it your team is it consultants like who is presenting whether it's this moderna what if or uh, the agriculture company what yeah. ifs or whatever it may be that you guys are working on who is ideating these questions 
So, you know, in the early days when there weren't that many people, it was me and a small number of people. Over time, by 2010, there was probably 10, 15 of us who were doing this constantly. And so one of the things you have to realize is that these what-ifs are not epiphanies. They're like a dime a dozen. And and if we spent another 10 minutes talking, I can get you to come up with what-ifs right. that you'd be surprised you came up with. I, I came up with one right now is what if my wooden desk wood can create its own wood? But, you know. Well, okay. So, by the way, so most people – most people would take that and, and laugh at it and make fun of it and say, oh, but how are you going to do that? I'll never work. And then they just shut it down. And, and I'll, I'll tell you one thing because this may be a useful interlude. You know, what you, the what if is the, is, the, is the ability for our imagination to have a say in our life. Most of the time, we suppress our imagination and we completely subject ourselves to the power of reasoning. And it turns out that the more we learn in education, the more we suppress our imagination, the more we rely on knowledge we've accumulated, knowledge we apply, and just reasoning skills. Guess what? Reasoning allows you to operate in the here and now and in the most narrowly proximal distance from here and now. If you want to leap, you have a facility to do that. It's called imagination. It's just that reasoning clobbers it over the head because it makes fun of your imagination. Except if you realize that if you don't allow yourself to leap, you're not going to create new value pools. Forget about it. And by the way, you might, as a lottery, win a lottery ticket and you might land on a new value pool. But if you do, 100 other people will show up the next day to claim the same value pool. It's called a commodity. So, so I would say that the first skill to learn in order to do this kind of work is to, if you see the sign behind me, trust your crazy ideas. In the first instance, you need to protect them. And so, to come back to the Moderna case, we... And sorry, sorry, sorry Nubar, before we sure. get there, one question about what you just said. What are your thoughts on this like reality distortion field, though, of, of when, when you do realize maybe that something is uh, maybe not going to be able to come to fruition, whether scientifically it's like not possible or like, you know, when, when you decide, all right, maybe we should move on to something else. Is that like, how do you, like, how yeah. do you explain uh, certain entrepreneurs, you know, perhaps like Theranos. Going, yeah, like Theranos are going down the wrong perhaps, path. Yeah, Ther- Theranos, is a, Theranos is an entirely different story, but I'm happy to, I'm happy to address that as well. So let, let's back up a second. First of all, I, you know, because of the fact that we talk in a serial way, I'm explaining it in one example. But of right. course, one way you can do this and not, not be blown away by a, a so-called failure is to do many of them at the same time which is what we do. That's hence the idea of parallel entrepreneuring. Guess what? Investors figured this out decades ago. Institutional investors never bet on one thing. They bet on many. Why? Because they know that no matter how much risk they wring out of it, no matter how much reward they engineer into it, they're going to be wrong some of the time. And the way you mitigate that is you don't put all your eggs in that one basket. Entrepreneurs, in the way the game's usually played, are supposed to put all their eggs in one basket. And they're supposed to be wrong so that an investor can be right on average. I don't want to be that kind of entrepreneur. So long ago, I decided, you know what? The only way to, to be able to mitigate that is to actually have diversity in what you're pursuing. So that's that's the one thing. Second, you have to have to understand, and again, this comes out of evolution, that, that the, the competition between alternative solutions is what produces emergence, is what produces winners. And so 
if you don't have enough failures, you cannot have success. Just a nature of the way the competition is made. You cannot. So if you spend all your time avoiding failure, you will not find success, except if you're lucky. And therefore, if you just get success and you avoid failure all the time, I'd say count your lucky stars. I just don't know how to make a thousand people do that. So what do I mean by all that? I believe that one of the kind of disciplines you have to learn as an entrepreneur is that disappointment is overrated, absolutely overrated. So spending all your time avoiding disappointment is getting you further and further away from the opposite of disappointment. It's too bad there's no word appointment. But if there was, I'd say you want to get to appointment, you got to embrace disappointment and just live to live to live with it and diversify yourself so it's not fatal disappointments. If you do one thing and one thing only, you might face fatal disappointment. So diversify. Now, you might say, yeah, but diversification means I need more money. I need more people. The answer is yes. We're living in a time where there is more money. And if you can't get more money, then be even more clever to keep three versions of the same idea around. So again, you can constantly kind of redirect what you're doing. But that's that to me is the name of the game. It's a survivalist way to discover value. No, however smart you are, however thoughtful you are, <clears throat> I do not believe you can reason your way into a brilliant business plan. I think you can iterate your way into it. Sorry, we went off on a tangent, but to Moderna. Yeah. yeah, talk about Moderna. back to Moderna. So Moderna was initially an exploration that, again, started out with the coincidence of some of our what-if questions and realizing that <coughs> mRNA scientifically had been shown a little bit before to have some interesting ideas in cell cultures. Uh, a year later, so we formed this entity called LS18. One of the things we do is we number our companies. In the first year when we're prototyping, turns out it's a lot easier to kill a number than a name. So the last thing you want to do is to name something, you know, Phoenix Rising, you know, Super Galactic, whatever, and then like, oh, it didn't work out. So we just number them. So we're at, I think we're at number 92 or 93 right now. LS18 was what Moderna was. And for the first year, we went into the lab and did some of the killer experiments, absolutely looking to disprove that this could not work because that's what you want to do. You want to falsify your hypotheses in order to, to, to figure out whether it'll work or not. And we failed to fail. In other words, the experiments we found, we didn't do one experiment. We did many in parallel to see which one might work. Then we advanced it to the next stage and the next stage. And so what did we need to believe? We need to believe that you can make mRNA that was so modified that it would evade the innate immune response inside cells. We need to make sure that that mRNA can get into cells in animals and how to do that. And we had tried many different ways. And we need to make sure you make the correct protein and that it folds properly and it acts. None of which there was any real proof for, although bits and pieces we could bet on what we could observe in nature to see that it should kind of work. And once we got about a year into this, it became clearer and clearer that this was at least could work. Now, roll the clock forward. We spent three more years building this gigantic platform. We raised about a billion, billion and a half dollars in those first five years building a platform, a platform not to make one mRNA, but to make hundreds. And we did, we did partnerships with pharmaceutical companies, AstraZeneca, Merck, Vertex, the government, the U.S. government. This Now I'm talking 2010, 2015. There's no COVID. There's no nothing. We're just talking the preliminary phases. In 2015... For the first time, we went into the human, human clinical trials with our first product, which would have been a vaccine against the flu. Ironically, a pandemic flu strain that had never entered humans, but our 
found in birds. And the notion was, why not try it in something that's never gone into humans so that we could show that the immune system can be ready when and if that enters into humans because it was a safe thing to start with, right? Because you don't want to try out umbrellas for the first time when it's pouring rain, which is what happened later on. But if you try it under the shower, at least you'll get a little sense of it in case it rains the next day. That's kind of how we thought about the flu as a, as a good example of what we were going to be uh, uh, going against. We never thought about pandemics actually happening. We just thought it was a safe place. In the intervene in the following five years, Moderna grew to about, oh, let's see, uh, 20 different drug and vaccine programs, 10 vaccines. We had entered into human trials, 10 drugs, uh, all early stage. And then the beginning of 2020, COVID hit. And so since the world didn't know the company existed, but at that time, the company had a thousand people plus, had spent two and a half billion by this time developing its platform, had 20 drugs and vaccines in the clinic. Mostly spending money, right? On R&D and... and All uh, R&D. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of that money actually was was funded by pharmaceutical partnerships. So it was basically right. revenues, contract revenues. So we had income. We also had spending. But yes, it was there was no product sales. You know, it's interesting because, and I'm sure you've heard this more than anybody, but when this whole pandemic or COVID first began, it was like, well, how can anybody come up with a vaccine overnight? You know, I can't put this in my body. You know, meanwhile, I know me and Pat knew for at least five years that Moderna had already existed. And if anybody cared to Google something, you know, they would have known that Moderna started in 2009, 2010 and not in 2020 on in March. Um, so I, what happens? I mean, obviously, you know, the COVID starts... Do you guys go into panic mode or is it just calm and you're like, okay, how do we figure this out for COVID? Uh, yeah, somewhere in between. So, <laughs> uh, so basically the way COVID uh, presented itself was itself interesting in that late in December of 2019, there were a couple of scant reports of kind of unusual reports of symptoms in China in the beginning of 2020, January, early there were more reports, but there was no, nobody was kind of taking it too seriously. Um, because Moderna at the time worked already on a number of infectious disease vaccines, and in particular had a partnership with the NIH, the, the very group that Tony Fauci runs called NIAID, Infectious Disease and Allergy Institute at the NIH, um, we had close communications on emerging threats and the like. And in early 2020, um, we learned from a number of sources that people in the public health world, the World Health Organization, CEPI, several other agencies, were getting reports from China of an increasing potential threat of unknown type. Initially, it wasn't known to be SARS. Don't forget there was SARS-1 mm -hmm. that, 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 that hit us back when. So this was SARS-CoV-2, but, but that was only learned later. But it was this unusual thing. It wasn't. We didn't know if it was flu or not. And there was this race to try to figure out what it is. But at, at some point, there was enough of this concern raised that we decided that we should start working on it. Early in 2020, the sequence was, was made public by a Chinese scientist online. Uh, from there, we had the wherewithal to very quickly computationally determine which part should be used as the vaccine antigen, which we could code for with the mRNA. Uh, why? Because we had worked on MERS before. And MERS is a very similar, uh, the Middle Eastern version of this is a very similar virus. 
And so we took that and decided. So the first decision, uh, which I remember was around January 21st of 2020, uh, only because it was my daughter's birthday. And I happened to be in a restaurant. Uh, very rarely do I get to celebrate the birthdays, but I was in town on that day. And I got a call from the CEO of the company, Stefan Mansell, who called me from Davos, where he was basically being uh, 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 approached by a number of different public health people saying, hey, can you guys think about working on this? And we decided to work on it. It was no pandemic. Nobody in the U.S. had died from it. But we decided to work on it for a very different reason. One, because we thought it was a public responsibility. Two, because we had this very unique platform that could very quickly come up with a candidate vaccine. That we knew. And ironically, in the biotech field, the one thing you don't need is speed because it takes 10 years to develop anything. And so it's like running to the beginning of a marathon. Very few people run up to the marathon starting because it's a marathon after. So, But here was this interesting opportunity where speed could matter. And we thought, hey, why don't we just add this as our 21st program and very quickly gear up and go after it? Not because we thought it was going to be billions of doses needed, by the way, if we thought it would be billions of those needed, I don't think we would have worked on it because it would have been overwhelming and, and intimidating because we had, up until then, we had made thousands of doses of anything ever. And so, but we just said, you know what, let's just hurry up and show that this platform can do something quickly. And so sure enough, 40 days later, we entered the first human arm and a couple of months later, we could show pretty definitively that in phase one trials, which, which vaccines are quite telling, that we could get neutralizing protection. And then we did a big study after that. So the pandemic part of this, the shutdown in the US came two months after all of these decisions were made, and simply made the decision that much more, in hindsight, important. And it kind of almost took it away from our hands, because at some point, it became, you know, an international kind of like project. And then a couple of months into it, uh, uh, Pfizer, together with BioNTech, entered into it with with very similar approach and and we weren't competing we were actually thinking well this is good in that we're not the only ones trying to go after this uh there was another set of people astrazeneca j and j with a very different technology and so you know that's that's what 2020 was like um was it like an all hands on deck thing like you you know the whole moderna team were completely shifting whatever we're working on before even though it kind of relates to it to, to trying to figure out this this vaccine and getting it to market as soon as possible. And if it was, was that like a massive risk you were taking at the time? Here's a company that perhaps had raised a bunch of money or, or you had some sort of fiduciary duty to investors. And if, if it didn't work out for whatever reason, could it have affected the company negatively? I would say yeah, there again, it was kind of in between. We did not stop our other programs. Uh, we added this program to everything else we did. Fortunately, the piece of the biggest challenge we had was scaling up manufacturing and scaling up clinical trials, both of which we weren't doing in any other program anyway. We didn't have large-scale manufacturing needs, so it wasn't anything to distract. We just had to build it from scratch. And so what happened is that what we would have done over the next three years, we did it in three months. In that, And we had a lot of help doing it from the U.S. government and from lots of other collaborators but we needed to get it up and running. But it's not like we had to shift. So we shifted some resources, but by no means did we shut down everything else we were doing. So actually, I think if it turned out to be a bust largely, we would have suffered some setback, but but not a major one. 
How how involved are Unibar with all of the companies that come out of flagship pioneering? Well, I'm involved in different ways. You know, directly I'm involved in probably half a dozen of them at any given time and probably another half a dozen kind of a little bit a little bit, you know, less frequently, but you know, probably uh, of that ilk. Uh, but then I have a very large team of people who are responsible for the the overall kind of uh, uh, ecosystem of companies we've built, and so the rest of the involvement is through the processes we have to to be informed about, think about strategy for, and try to contribute to to the whole uh, 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 grouping of companies. It's about forty eight companies. About twenty five of them are in a growth stage at any given time, and about fourteen of them are public. So you know, I my role is as CEO of of the overall organization is to have a team with which, and in some cases directly, uh, we get to try to both create on the input to the funnel and on the other end of it, help grow this, this range of companies. You've, you've reached obviously this stage in your life that there has been a massive amount of financial success, a massive amount of success just in business. I mean, obviously, you know, no short of saving millions of lives, tens of millions of lives through the work that, you know, this company that you and your team ideated uh, came, came to be. What, what is motivating you now? What, what keeps you going? Have, have you changed at all in your vision as a, as a person? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would hope, I would hope not in some way. I hope that I get wiser with every additional white hair that I have, but, um, I would say what's keeping me going is what motivated me 22 years ago to start Flagship and what has allowed me to attract the terrific team of people, which is the, the ambition of showing a completely new way of making breakthrough innovations and creating companies that can have impact on the world. Uh, and that, that mission is, is nowhere near complete. I cannot say that based on what we've done so far, we figured it out and now, you know, we can kind of just let it be. So there's a lot of iteration and learnings that go on, not just at the individual company level, but at the level of flagship in how, how you operate this type of an innovation foundry, if you will. And, and if you look closely at what we do, every single thing we, we start is unreasonably disconnected from anything that's happened before. That's why we call this pioneering. It's not, we don't mean pioneering as a compliment. We mean it in the full sense of the scared to death version of the word because it has no precedent. And so that, so being able to persist in far out places, create value and have impact is, is a super rewarding thing to try to systematize because people are willing to accept that you can do that by luck once in a while or by hard work. But the notion that you could do that in a repeatable way is, is an interesting kind of proposition. So that keeps me going. And then, as I said earlier, the impact of the things that come through what we do is, you know, is, is, is highly rewarding. I, look, I don't view the lives that this technology platform saved or the impact we've had in a quantitative way, nor, frankly, the financial results. But I do think that, that it's giving us the means to do more on the one hand, more through more companies, more products, more impact. And on the other hand, more through social impact and the philanthropy work that occupies a whole lot of my time and has for over a, a couple of decades. 
But you know, the more resources I have, the more of that I can do too. And that's what I was going to ask. Sorry, go for it, Pat. I was going to ask about the philanthropic work too. So I think that was going to be the next question for both of us is, you know, outside of all the, all the business work that you do, you know, you're very involved in so many different things philanthropically, including obviously the Armenian community. Um, so kind of share with us, you know, what your grand vision is there. What do you, what do you hope to really accomplish on the philanthropic side um, in terms of like a dream for you? Um, you know, if you will. You know, I, I, I have the, the, conceit that some of what we've learned how to do through flagship may apply to the social impact world in that if you are willing to leap and 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 kind of like pre-discover things that other people would have eventually discovered except much later and create that a bridge to that future that that is a an impactful way to come up with novelty in that space as well uh the economics is different the way you fund it is different but but I'm I'm drawn to that possibility. Much of what I've done in Armenia, actually in the country of Armenia, is is largely based on that, on the notion that um, if you can imagine a better future, not generically but very precisely, uh, whether it's in education or in healthcare or in various economic sectors or in society in general, governance, and make that imagined future weigh on your present and kind of almost pull you in that direction, then that is a way of thinking about forging a more prosperous future and a more secure future that would otherwise not be available to, you know, relatively poor countries that have a lot of challenges. Uh, I've been less successful, frankly, there, being able to compel people to follow that idea, but we've done a lot of individual projects that are symbolic of that notion. The other space where I've done quite a bit of work uh, in the last uh, seven years, eight years, is in kind of more of a global nature, trying to recognize that this journey from surviving to reviving to striving to thriving is a journey that refugees and immigrants are taking by the millions every day. Uh, The worse the conditions, the longer that journey, the harder that journey. And being a descendant of survivors of a genocide a century ago, I feel that whatever I can do to help that journey uh, be successful for people, one, motivate them, that that's a journey they can take, two, recognize that they need to then, if they really do get up on their feet, go back to people who now need their help and contribute to them. Those are things that are special obligation that I feel because I'm the beneficiary of, you know, people who took in my Grandparents, after they were they were they were almost killed off, all the way to Bulgaria, then to Lebanon, all the stuff you've heard. Canada, which took my family in as a, as as a political refugees, and then the U.S. So I, you know, that project is called Aurora Aurora Humanitarian Initiative, which is a global project. It gives gives us a platform to also, but they all relate to the same, ironically, same journey. Whether it's a country trying to pull itself up from misery or it's individuals who've been thrown into kind of the, 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 the most tragic situations all around the world, or a startup entrepreneur who wants to make a go of it, or a sector in a country. All of that, to me, benefits from some of these mindsets. And so I'm trying to do everything I can with my resources to, to bring that mindset and the resource behind it to do some good. Well, I have two more quick questions, and then we'll start wrapping up. First, when are you writing your book called What If? 
<laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure there are plenty of books that are being written called What If As It Is, and I've seen advertisements and everything. So I won't I won't be here long enough to own, to possess that. But or I, I LS199, you know, so, something you something know. different. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's it's a, that's a longer topic. If I was going to write about it, probably the thing that mostly occupies me these days is kind of this notion of what it is to be able to make leaps of faith. It's an interesting expression. I, I think a lot about it. I've done a lot of uh, thinking and, and acting on that because I just, the, what I said earlier to you guys, the degree to which we suppress our imagination and we live kind of an earthbound life of adjacency explorations and the degree to which we have the tools to really leap and fall on our face and bloody get bloodied up, that that is a capability that if we could deploy in a more reliable way so people don't get freaked out the minute they have to jump two inches off the ground, uh, I think we can accomplish so much as humans, and including all the solutions to to uh, problems that seem insoluble, whether it's political or it's climate or whatever. And so I probably can can add my thoughts to that, and someday I try to do it by talking, by explaining. But someday maybe you know I I worry that that there's too much to do right now to yeah. to, to write a book. But eventually yeah. I hope I'll be able to do that. And finally, you said something early on about, you know, you loved studying and studying hard and your brothers would make fun of you. I know your parents weren't around necessarily to see the successes of the last, you know, decade or even the last two years. But, you know, your two brothers are around. What would your parents think and what do your brothers think of, you know, the success that you've had? You know, I'm, we're very close as a family. I think that um, I have my own belief system, as you figured out by now. Among my belief system is that people live on through their to their offspring, and whatever impact they've had on my life continues to be alive. And so, the part of me that is directly linked to the memories and the and the mindsets of my parents that live through me uh, are are I'm sure on the one hand feeling pretty fortunate, and then on the other hand feeling pretty rewarded for the effort they put in to to help help me develop in a way and be in a good situation to be able to have the impact I've had. Look, at the end of the day, the impact uh, uh, far exceeds what, what I aimed to, uh, to, uh, to achieve. And I mean by that impact on people, not on not financial. And, and, and that, that is something you don't control. If that's something that presents and, and, and if you can have, a, have one small piece in it, which, I, which I'm happy to have had, you just have to realize that that's, you, you know, you work really hard and and you and you expose yourself to lots of risky situations and once in a while that should follow and and so yeah yeah i think my my brothers are themselves pretty pretty interesting people and and so we have a we kind of feel fortunate i mean look if you think about it 100 years ago we could have been completely killed off just totally killed off and and that is ir- ironic and to say the least it's also interesting that many of the other people who've been working on this including the folks in in germany uh, the Uyghurs the, who, who kind of came, the, the the you know, came at came at this in a different way, and even Albert Burla, who's, who's who's kind of, of of Jewish background from Greece, they've all gone through a similar road, and so it's kind of interesting to see lots of this. Maybe I'll leave you with the thought that I do think that the immigrant journey, the immigrant mindset, does cause you to be a little more resilient to the kind of challenges that you don't have to have immigrated to be good at this. But you need to kind of think about this as a constant form of immigration. And in that regard, I was fortunate to have that upbringing. Yeah. And, you know, 
I can probably speak for Pat here too that when we first met you five years ago now that we were already inspired by the work you were doing. And, you know, even though we didn't see you during that five years and have seen obviously all the work that's been going on the last three, you know, we're even be, we are further inspired. And I think that, you know, your message now through this podcast, through other works, through just the companies that you've built will hopefully inspire a new age of entrepreneurs to think like you have and to take on that belief system so that imagination can exceed, you know, logic and that we can actually have innovative companies and innovative products that will have an impact, not financially, like you said, but actual human impact, actual environmental impact. So, you know, thank you for that. And we hope to continue witnessing that because there is no shortage of innovation needed. I don't see it as competition. Hopefully there are hundreds, if not thousands of new Barafeans that think this way. It will only help us collectively. So for that, all I could say is thank you. Thank you guys. Enjoyed talking to you.